Anyway. Sometimes you have a lot of different strengths in music. Someone's really good at guitar or really good at lyrics or really good at something. And sometimes you just casually transcend from one genre to another and incidentally create an entire possible subgenre under you. I mean, you can never attribute like one giant growth to one person, but sometimes in some ways, if you look at it right, there's somebody who would do it 10 years before anybody else, and that just makes sense, so... Tonight we're covering a beautiful lady. I'm Ian. I'm Pat. Thank you for listening to Dude Check Out This Song. And I think we got a good one tonight. I really think we found the root of rock and roll right <laughs> here, honestly. Yeah, because didn't you say one of these songs is actually considered the first rock and roll song of all time? Yeah, and we'll get to that too. Mm-hmm. And if you guys don't know who we're covering, we're covering Sister Rosetta Tharp. Mm-hmm. Rosetta Tharp, not Thorpe. I said it Thorpe like the first three times, and then I actually read the word, and I'm like, oh, that's an A. <laughs> well, if you don't know who Sister Rosetta Tharp is, strap in, because here we go. She was born Rosetta Newman on March 20th, 1915, in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, to Katie Bell Newman and Willis Atkins, who were cotton pickers. Some researchers say that her birth name's actually Adkins or Adkinson, but you know, like everything we deal with in this era, who really knows? Yeah. Tharp's mother, Katie Newman, was a gospel singer and mandolin player who traveled with the Church of God in Christ Ministry, Kajik for short. And she played for the Holiness Church in Cotton Plant. Now, if you don't know what Kajik is, it was founded in 1894 by Charles Harrison Mason, a black Pentecostal bishop who encouraged rhythmic music expression, dancing in praise, and allowing women to sing and teach in the church. So is this like kind of the root of all the like singing gospel, or is that just kind of like alongside it? That's what it looks like, you know, kind of like in the Blues Brothers yeah. where they go into the church and they're all dancing and singing. Like, yeah, exactly. This is pretty much what it is. Oh, okay, that's cool. Now, Katie Bell Newman, after divorcing her husband, she decided to raise her daughter, Rosetta, with the help of the Pentecostal church community and continued her work as a traveling preacher and musician. Little is known of her father, except that he was a singer. Well, of course. I mean, you kind of have to start that young to be that good. You know what I mean? Speaking of how young she was, she was actually encouraged by her mother to start singing and playing guitar as... Get this little Rosetta Newman at the age of four and was cited as a musical prodigy. <laughs> Wait, so she was like performing live at the age of four? She started playing at the age of four. Oh, okay. At the age of six, she started joining her mother as a regular performer in a traveling evangelical troupe. <laughs> and she was billed as singing and guitar playing miracle, 
Little Sister, or my personal favorite, Pint Size Guitar Playing Miracle. Pint Size Guitar <laughs> Playing Miracle. That's yeah. a, now that's a stage name. <laughs> hey, you should honestly adapt something very similar to that, Ian. Oh, thanks, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is is nobody will believe the miracle part <laughs> yeah, we came for a prodigy what the fuck is this <laughs> oh, just kidding everybody we love Ian but I am short fuck you guys <laughs> so in the mid 1920s Tharp and her mother settled in Chicago Illinois yeah yeah where they performed religious concert at the Kajik Church on 40th Street, occasionally traveling to perform church conventions throughout the country. And by this occasional, I think they mean like semi-frequently because just the way it looked at this early age, it seemed like, you know, she was constantly all over the world. You know, this is the mid-20s. She was like 10, 11. Like, how crazy is that? So That's fucking insane. From an early age, she was just traveling around the country with her mom playing music. Yeah, when you grow up to do nothing else, it shows how easily she does it for the rest of her life. And jokes aside, she was actually considered a musical prodigy. Yeah, and she stood out in an era when prominent black female guitarists were rare. And I think we've talked about this before, too. Yeah, we, we have kind of delved into this a few times. But honestly, I had no idea because, you know, it's kind of a shame that, like, uh, I don't know, instruments are kind of, you know, genderized or, you know... Uh, even in some cases, like, culturized, you know, certain instruments are are used in specific cultures, but not the other ones, when there's so many instruments in the world that make so many interesting, you know, tones. Yeah. It's it's not necessary to, to apply any sort of labels to that. I think everybody should be able to play whatever the fuck they want. The Russians have a giant bass that's, like, a shaped like a giant pick. <laughs> it's fucking... Actually, there's varying sizes to that. So they're even as small as, say, like a banjo. Oh, nice. But yeah, they're but all, they're, they're three string. Yeah, they're all, all that big, a pyramid shape. Yeah, and I think I think the one you're, that you're specifically talking about, because I know exactly what you're talking about, was specifically made for that band to be a bass. Oh, okay. And so in the early 1930s, Rosetta ended up relocating to New York City, where she joined the holiest uh, the Holiness Church in Harlem, and began performing with the church choir. And in 1934, at the age of 19, she married Thomas Thorpe. Now, it's spelled T-H-O-R-P-E. So she married a Thorpe. Yeah, I'm getting to that. See, I wasn't wrong. She was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so Thomas Thorpe was a Kajic preacher who accompanied her and her mother on many of their tours. Unfortunately, the marriage only lasted a few years. Oh, number one, huh? Number one. Oh, shit. So she did end up adopting a version of her husband's name. Tharp. Yeah. So her stage name was Sister Rosetta Tharp. T-H-A-R-P-E. So she basically kept it, but tweaked it just one little dash at the bottom there. Yeah, this this vowel is no longer yours, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I don't know what their relationship was, but, you know. I don't know. He I'm was, dramatizing, guys. He was a preacher, so I would guess that he was older than her. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, that's, I don't know if that's a proper assumption. You don't think so? I mean, it makes sense because preachers are always kind of portrayed as older, but... Uh, I mean, I guess that's true. Sunhouse was... What, 15 when he started preaching? Yeah, so. exactly. I don't know. Maybe there's preachers of all ages. 
All you young preachers out there, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> At Pat for me. He really wants to know. Oh, don't do that. And so by 1938, Rosetta would end up playing a famous New York spot called the Cotton Club. And this is where she was really starting to get discovered by people and stuff like that. And on October 31st, 1938, at the age of 23, Rosetta recorded for the first time four sides for Decca Records, backed by Lucky Melander's Jazz Orchestra. Now, these are the first gospel songs to be recorded by Decca. And, oh, yeah, if you guys couldn't figure out, she's a gospel singer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if that was mentioned yet, but she's a yeah. gospel singer and somehow we, we also of so amazingly rock and roll at the same <laughs> time. It seems ridiculous. Yeah, and so this is where she recorded the songs Rock Me, That's All, My Man and I, The Lonesome Road, and This Train. And they were all instant hits, basically establishing her as, quote-unquote, an overnight sensation. Because you know that's how it works. Yeah, da-da-da, overnight she, sensation. Yeah, she didn't work, you know, since she was four years old to get to this point. Yeah, no. literally not trained her whole life. That's quote-unquote overnight sensation. And now, here's the thing about the song Rock Me. That song would basically influence many rock and roll singers. Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. And if you guys can't figure out why... Maybe start the song over and listen to the guitar intro because that is a rock and roll guitar solo right there. Yeah, I mean, it is it is absolutely a rock and roll guitar solo ten times over, and it would be honestly mimicked almost note for note for years to come. Oh, there's certain solos that we'll get to that were easily just like you can pinpoint like, oh, this is this guy's solo right here. Yeah, oh, in, I've in heard his this. famous song. Yeah, exactly. This is his solo, the one he's super famous for. And so, the moment you guys have all been waiting for, the first dude check out this song of this episode. <laughs> I'm a soundboard today. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let me let me uh hit this next one for you. Flush noise. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the fart button. Damn it. God, what kind of show is this? <laughs> and so, of course, the first song I'm going to have on this dude check out this song is Rock Me. It is amazing. Did I mention these songs were recorded in 1938 and they basically sound like an almost acoustic rock and roll song? Yeah, I really did have to like, I, once we started listening, I like put it on. I saw the year and we listened to like a few songs. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, wait a second. 1939? That's too early. 38. Like, yeah, no. Well, the song I was looking at was labeled 39, but 38. Yeah. Oh, that just, was when we were looking at this train. Yeah. And it, it's just I'm like... What? Like, that? that's just, that's too early for this sound. Like, because you, you expect to hear this in, like, what would be an acoustic offshoot of rock and roll, rather, is an acoustic inspiration that it appears to just, I, we haven't come up to a lot of artists so far who have even mentioned her as an inspiration, because every artist we, like, go about, we find their top ten inspirations. Yeah. And she hasn't even popped up on any of those lists so oh, far. Oh, she will. Oh, I mean, I, I, she definitely will as we come for as we go forward. But it's interesting to th see like all the stuff we've covered so far. She's not influential at all, and now it, like this is in the middle of so many of the people we've covered. 
Yeah. Like half the people we've covered's career are, are all going All the acoustic right blues now. artists, yeah. folk artists, you know, Lead Belly was probably slashing somebody at this point. <laughs> yeah. Literally why this song was being recorded. Lead Belly was cutting a man. In the same town. <laughs> yeah. Lead Belly was cutting a man with a razor. That is official folklore that is a false but still is going on the record. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. We're, we're making up the best lies. We make the best lies in town here. Do check out this song. Shall I get to the next song on this list? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So the next song is That's All. And it's actually kind of more of a a jazzier tune, but quite good. Yeah, it's and it definitely shows like it. It feels more like a jazz-inspired rock and roll, too, like as you listen to it, even with all the jazz that she puts into it and keeps the... uh, the gospel-y feel somehow even there's that little splinter of rock and roll that just bink. Anytime she does a solo, that's that splinter of rock and roll. Because sometimes you're like, this is the person who started rock and roll, and then you hear that guitar come in and go, oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. And they, what do they call it? A solid body or a, a, it's like a solid top? Arch guitar. top. Arch top, yeah. Those those guitars, they sound so good, but they just scream rock and roll. And then the last song on this list, which I know you will dig... I know you loved, actually, was This Train. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> This Train is an amazing song, and it's a cover of Woody Guthrie's song. So, yeah, yeah, woot, woot. And also, uh, all you Bob Marley fans out there know Bob Marley did a version of it, too. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, 1966. And so, kind of jumbling up the order here on the biography, before she even recorded these songs, she did what is considered a historic live recording at Carnegie Hall from the spirituals to swing, accompanied by boogie-woogie pianist Albert Amons. And even though the recording is echo-drenched and not really of the highest quality, these early recordings are considered some of the first rock and roll records. I have something coming up that's like a lot more definitive considered the first rock and roll recording, but like these are kind of like the early like infancy of rock and roll, these recordings these here. These are the prototypes. Yeah. And, yeah, I looked up some of these recordings, and, yeah, not of the highest quality. Yeah, they will not be taking any appearance on the dude check out this song. They may, but maybe only one or two. Yeah, at the very end, with a warning. Just to see where it started. <laughs> and so, the 1940s, they were considered the pinnacle of gospel music, you know, like, as they were popular in the United States. Like, this is when they were the most popular, like, just hands down, top of the charts type stuff. And Rosetta was basically the leading woman of the whole genre. Yeah. And we touched on this before, but by the late 30s is when she first started transitioning from, you know, finger-picking the acoustic to an electric guitar. And to quote the biographer Gail Wald, he said, when Rosetta Tharp switched to the electric guitar primarily as a performer, she enjoyed a loud, kind of noisy, dirty sound hell yeah uh we call that rock and roll my friend that's not what they called it yet (laughs) (laughs) they probably called her a heretic oh if you really want to know what they called her they had a specific thing for her because like i mentioned before a woman playing guitar in this era not very common and so they kind of gave her a backhanded compliment and said that she could play like a man oh Thanks, I guess. Yeah. That's that's kind of a... (laughs) Well, her retort to this was, can't no man play like me. I play better than a man. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, don't mind me. I'm just uh, I'm getting the extension cord for this spotlight. <laughs> 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 to every man who played guitar or criticized guitar back in this day, right? No, no, not uh, not at all, not at all. Just anybody who would be like, yeah, she plays like a man. Like, like, what the fuck? This is like the music version of the Sandlot. You play ball like a girl. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. So, anyways, let's pump the brakes and get back on the line here. Well, let's do a year update. Where are we at here chronologically? Chronologically, early 40s. Okay. 40, 41. Okay, 1941. And so, I mean, comparatively... If we're being honest, some of the like jazz revolutions are still happening at this oh, very yeah. moment. Some or the, about to happen. Yeah, exactly. Some of the big jazz revolutions we talked about haven't even happened yet. That's just such yeah, an like, interesting point. Bebop hasn't even happened yet. That's the crazy part. Yeah, exactly. Like these these and it's not to say that like rock and roll invalidated jazz or anything like that. That's not what I'm implying. It just Yes, you are. Rock and roll just takes so much like mass of the music industry so quickly that it's interesting to see like how actually how, slow it was yeah well of course yeah i mean it how yeah. it, it really did take a a long time to come in and a lot of people couldn't identify it there's almost like a i know people obviously were mimicking each other but it's almost like a like a group mental effort that rock and roll was born and nobody even knew it was its own genre because it's in like five or six different genres all at once yeah and then all well, these there's people so many there's so many genres that it mixes into it and kind of creates its own thing in combination with what's considered at the time basically a brand new invention the electric guitar yeah exactly and it's so interesting like it's perfectly timed because it comes about that new technological revolution with the new way of playing like i almost think that it's obviously was necessary for the genesis at the time for the new instruments to come out therefore you need new new comfortable ways to play them because you couldn't just when the electric guitar came out you couldn't just immediately be like hey i'm gonna play the complex jazz i was playing on jazz guitar on this now no they didn't even have the technology yeah it wasn't even possible i mean i mean nowadays you can kind of do it if you get all the proper equipment and stuff but like think of when they're just coming out with uh, like electric guitars you have a pretty specific set of things you can do and have it sound good and so you have and it probably sounded like chaotic and crazy because i mean think of Think of the cable technology at the time because, you know, like microphones were just coming out and, you know, it was just it pro- they probably broke constantly. They were probably super expensive because they're just there wasn't that many around. And I can imagine like without the without the knowledge of what it was and everything like it could almost feel like they're it's like ghosts and stuff because you have to be using a mic and that at the same time. And if you've even been to it like a punk show in the 90s or 2000s you know what like reverb and in bad feedback sounds like could you imagine in the like 40s or 50s oh yeah when things to... weren't even properly grounded yeah, and... <laughs> <laughs> we watched one where she's playing in the rain at a train station with a fucking amp under a small bench like that's <laughs> we you couldn't even make it work today and she's playing that, on, like... that was actually recorded in the 60s i will get to that recording oh nice yeah but but either way like it it kind of is really interesting to think about, like, the genre coming out of necessity. 
because all of those old things really weren't applicable for this new uh, like invention, but the new invention still had such a unique and good sound. There needed, there was something that could really be appropriate for it. And she, at least as far as I can find, was basically the early adopter of this technology. I mean, I didn't even know electric guitars were around in the late thirties. No, I, I had thought they no, were. I thought they came around in the forties. Yeah, I had no fucking idea that electric guitar was a thing in the, in in nineteen thirty eight. What? Like, I, I was, like, when we sat down and we were talking about, like, oh, we're going to figure out what the first electric guitars, like, I'm still working with the mental facilities of, like, you know. The 50s when yeah, rock and roll, yeah, like, it, first start coming yeah, out. exactly. Like, I'm like, okay, like, maybe a few years before, what, Buddy Holly or something. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, we're basing it off of when the mu- that kind of music started getting popular. Yeah, exactly. But here we are in fucking 1938, and this gospel musician is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fucking do it. I'm going to transcend this whole fucking genre right now. Boom. And now, speaking of her playing gospel music, she was always popular among the gospel scene, even when she was six years old. Always popular. But she got flack from a lot of the gospel community because some of her songs were quote-unquote secular music. They weren't all gospel songs. I mean, she played mainly gospel songs, and everything I showed you tonight were all gospel songs, but she did play secular music. And in 1943, she was possibly considering doing all gospel music again, but she didn't really have much choice because the record label kind of pushed her into recording certain songs that weren't gospel. And in fact, like when she would play in a nightclub, you know, which for a gospel singer to play in a nightclub and not just like a church is kind of like, whoa, what's going on, right? She would sing gospel songs and be accompanied by scantily clad showgirls and so this was another reason why the a lot of the gospel community shunned her because because she liked to be super hot and amazing well like who's who's complaining about fucking burlesque girls and shit churchy people come on i mean okay yeah but i get it but god made those boobs guys get out of here shoo <laughs> shoo <laughs> i think we're saying uh pat's opinion on religion right about now <laughs> not even talking about religion but boobs, get out of here. <laughs> or we're seeing Pat's desire to see more boobs. I'm not <laughs> sure which. <laughs> Figure out, or you'll see on the next exciting episode of Dude, Check Out This Song. Will they see it? No, probably not. And so I got a little tie-in to an episode on our first season. Oh, yeah. Lay it on me. So during World War II... Rosetta was one of only two gospel singers to be able to record the discs for the troops overseas. Nice. Yeah. AKA, you know, the band people. Come on now. Yeah, the victory discs. Yep. Yep. So that just for people who didn't listen to that episode, I'll just I won't spend a whole bunch of time on it, but she was able to record uh, music when music was like the recording was banned was going on. So she was able to record yeah. music to specifically send to the troops. And at this time, the only recordings you could do were for the troops overseas. V or victory discs, which is really interesting. Cause if you've ever read like 1984, they have the victory gin. So it kind of cracks <laughs> me up. Isn't everything victory. Don't they have victory cigarettes too? Oh yeah, exactly. It's a, uh, it's a victory. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> According to the book, though, those victory smokes really sucked. Of course they did. (laughs) But we're way off topic here. 
Her song, Strange Things Happening Every Day, recorded in 1944 with Sammy Price playing uh, Boogie Woogie Piano again. Kenna showcased her virtuosity on guitar. And, you know, she had witty lyrics and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, think about this. This was a V-disc. This was first sent over to the troops. Hell yeah. That's fucking awesome. And eventually this song would end up becoming the first gospel song to make Billboard's Harlem Hit Parade. You know, we've talked about this. I can't remember what episode it was, but this was kind of how they tracked hit songs at the time. You know, it actually made the the top 10 for this. That's awesome. Oh, I mean, well, of course it made the top 10 during the V-Disc era, though. Like, who else is going to make yeah, the top but short, 10? It, shortly after this is when the band started easing up and phasing out, too. So I it's kind of like true. she recorded a V-Disc, sent it over, and then, then it was like, oh, we can record again. We got this recording. And it still caught on. Yep. Hell yeah. And this actual recording is what most historians consider the first rock and roll recording. Wait, which one? The one that she sent across the, or on the video. Yeah, day. strange things happening every day. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, and so we've li- we listened to this one too. Yeah, I the mean, song is super rocking. It, yeah, it really is. It's like actually an like piece. yeah, it's actually like you got the piano behind it, and then you've got her just doing like guitar solos across the top where the piano's really holding the rhythm down, and then she's singing and then doing these you know guitar solos across the top like. Like, I don't know what Rockabilly did. Yeah, exactly. And it, it and the form of it definitely fits rock and roll for the first time. The, like, 4-4 four, four classical, simple rock and roll formation. Which, I mean, nowadays everybody thinks, like, everybody considers that the basic now. And I want to, I'm going to lay down just a little, little knowledge on y'all. Though 4-4 four, four has always been around since classical music time. And it always has been a more common thing. It was not 99% of music like it is now. Where's my swish button here? Yeah, swish. <laughs> no, no, no. Swish as in you just oh. fucking nailed a three-pointer, oh, man. swish. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, if I, if I could personally dip into the mind of every musician who listens, just look at time signatures. Do Play whatever you play in whatever genre you want and present everything you do the way you do. Just... Take a look at your time signature and look at something else and just have fun with it. That's all I ask. Ironically, my favorite time sign- signature to write in is 5-4. Yeah, I mean, 5-4 it, it is great. It works out so well with metal and stuff like that. I don't know why, but it just it gives you that little extra, like, weedly wild part. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the funny things is people don't really think about it, and obviously I'm not going to try and get too far off the path here, but 4-4 four, four and 5-4, like, you could think of that as, you can play a 5-4 riff like a 4-4, four, because four, you can have the 4-4 four, four part that starts it, yep. just every time you get to the end of the 4-4 four, four part. It's like a mini little turnaround. Yeah, take take one entire, you know, beat structure just to do something. You know, it could be an entire rest, so if you take four four and you rest an entire you know an entire four beats after each four four, you're in four five. You know what I mean? Like it's yep. it's suddenly whatever you want. Five or excuse me, we were talking about five four. Yeah. So yeah, excuse me. So five beats to the measure. Like uh, that's kind of the same thing that I'm talking about though. Like you know you take your four structure and you just add one more note. It's it's a little adjustment, but once you start to think about it that way, it stops being foreign and difficult 
And it's actually kind of hard to stop writing in that unconsciously. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. You do. Being somebody who definitely accidentally got stuck in several time signatures and multiple time or multiple times on my like musical career. Yeah, uh, that's one thing is when you when you start to learn another time signature, you start getting like stuck there the way you are currently likely stuck in four four. Well. And if you guys think we're going to go off the rails in this conversation and not throw Dude, Check Out This Song on you, you're wrong. Because yeah. Dude, Swish. Check Out This Song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so check out this song, Strange Things Happening Every Day. Yeah, that, that song is fucking amazing. I mean, we mentioned it like probably five minutes ago now, but it is <laughs> so worth listening to. It is, it is just amazing. Now, in 1946... Rosetta saw Mary Knight perform at a Mahalia Jackson concert in New York, and Rosetta recognized the special talent that Knight had. Two weeks later, she showed up at Knight's door, inviting her to go on the road with her. Hell yeah. That's fucking awesome. And so they started touring the gospel circuit for years, and during this time, they would record such hits as songs like Up Above My Head and Gospel Train, which is also like several albums you can find out there ever can you imagine how cool that was like take a perspective break on that for a second like not really phones very often like no cell phones no email no internet somebody just knocks at your door and is like hey i heard you fucking rock not just i heard you rock i saw you fucking yeah, yeah. rock well exactly like you know i i witnessed your rock ability uh see what i did there <laughs> I witnessed your rock ability and I want you to jam with me. And I just showed up at your house. Like I looked you up, which, you know, that's, that's like five extra steps back then. Cause you can't just Google that shit guys. Well, and so there was kind of some rumors going on with these two though, too. Oh, are they, what kind of rumors? Well, in the gospel community, it was speculated that, that they maintained a romantic and sexual relationship. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> God <laughs> forbids it. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> That's disgusting, Ian. <laughs> Can't believe women are having sexual relations. I know. Terrible. That, that displeases me. <laughs> I don't know if I'm making a sarcastic enough joke or voice for everyone to understand that. Pat really does hate lesbians, like, so, so much. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the thing is, in all my research, it was either they were rumored to have this relationship or they totally for sure had this relationship. So I'm keeping it at rumor because there was not enough agreement on it. If it was, like, nine of my sources out of ten said it, then it would have been a relationship, but it was, like, 50-50. Makes you wonder, though, what that actual first conversation was like. Because, you know, because I don't really, you know, it doesn't bother me one way or the other, but I'm the type of folklore guy to where I still would like to know the answer. So I'm like... But that's the point of the folklore, is you're never really going to truly know the answer. Yeah, so did she show up that day like, hey, I saw you play, I, I find this business relationship acceptable for both of us. Shall we both profit? And they shook hands and then they walked away. Or is it like... I would think it was one lonely night on the road and they're just like, man, I'm bored. <laughs> that was the porno you watched Ian <laughs> oh shit my bad 
All right, now we we I think we did promise not to get too far off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> we may have broken that promise, so let's get uh, let's at least attempt to get back well, on. There. Well, let me check my notes and figure out where the hell we are in this story. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have lesbian porno out there, huh? <laughs> just, uh, it's, just, it's up on my notes now. I think I'm in the wrong spot. Yeah, just press Control F and type in <laughs> lesbian porno. It'll take you right to the. Uh, <laughs> all right, I figured it out. <laughs> and so Rosetta and Knight would uh, would continue performing together off and on for the next twenty years. This was really like. You know, just a great working relationship, and they drew crowds, you know? So, yeah, I whatever mean, their actual relationship was, they made some money. Yeah. Well, Tharp is just such a great stage presence in and of herself. I haven't listened to the other ladies, so... Uh... She does, like, backups, and then, like, we'll do, like, main vocals in, in a lot of these recordings, and... Oh, so they were the same band. They weren't two separate shows? No, they sang together. Oh, that's... And on these albums and stuff, too. Okay, that's cool. I, I, I kind of had the uh, like the image that they were two separate bands, like, nope. traveling together, but they are the same uh, show. That's interesting. Yeah, and actually, these records sold really well. Like, it made them money. Like, they weren't, like, bad off at the time, you know? Yeah, they became affluent. And maybe, maybe that's another reason for that rumor to start, because people were jealous. Who the fuck knows? Yeah, they were probably, like, in nice clothes going out to places, you know, like, eating food at places, and people are immediately like, yep, lesbians. They they ate at a table, and they had spaghetti. They're lesbians. <laughs> and that was even before Lady and the Tramp came out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's the folklore. That's where it came from. <laughs> that's, where, that's how Lady and the Tramp got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, all, all I'm saying is there's no number two yet. We got number one for like two months, and then Preachy Man was out. Oh, well, you really want to hear about her number two then? Because that's literally next on my list. Oh, okay. Well, then, shatter Ian's porn. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so between all the touring that her and Knight were doing, Rosetta married her second husband. Number two. A gospel booking agent, Forrest Allen. Of course, by the 1950s, they were divorced. And <laughs> See, all of them. <laughs> yeah, number two, it, number two. Number two didn't last long either. And Thorpe would end up reuniting with her mother for a national tour. With her mother? Yeah. That's awesome. The one who got her going to begin with. That's so, fucking super Yeah, cool. and they would do the gospel circuit and go sing songs together. Like, how cool is that? I mean, that's actually probably amazing. And so before we get too far ahead, let's throw another dude check out this song in there. Oh, yeah. Up Above My Head. Up Above My Head. And you know who's up above your head? The Lord. Or the rim. I don't know. I mean, we're in a building with probably a few people above our head, if I'm being honest. And probably asbestos. No, I don't. Uh, this is a pretty modern building. They don't make a, you know how many years ago that was, Ian? I'm just trying to make you paranoid. I uh, work in a place with asbestos in it. Yeah, but don't you make like, airplanes, and don't they still use that for some stuff? Nah. Oh, you're, the building still just has it? Because the building was built in, you know, the 40s. Yeah. <laughs> Man, we are just having all the trouble in the world staying on the path, Ian. We really are. But that's okay. 
We're having fun, and that's what it's all yeah, about. We're having fun, and everybody else out there is having fun. At least that's what everybody has told me about the fact that I don't make money off of music. At least I'm having fun. Yeah, you're getting exposure, Ian. Oh, yeah, I'm getting paid in exposure. Yep. And so in 1949, though, their popularity kind of took a downturn. Mahalia Jackson, who I mentioned earlier, was basically kind of starting to eclipse them, you know, like basically stole their thunder. And Knight kind of really wanted to be known as a solo artist, you know, not really in tandem with Rosetta Tharp. Oh, yeah. Always the solo artist. Well, this also could be because Knight lost her children and mother in a house fire that same year. Oh, that's that's really fucking sad. Yeah, can you imagine how much your brain would be spinning after that? Yeah, I don't know. That's the type of stuff that makes you go on a downward spiral. I mean, other than, like, her possibly being a lesbian with Rosetta, that's, like, the only slight on her. So, I I think she just let God take care of it, and she kept to her, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. The I, I don't judge people about the things that they do when they're grieving too much because, you know, everybody takes loss in a different way, and it is, it is painful for everybody in a whole variety of ways. And some people take it, you know, they want to be, you know, statues and they never cry once and that's how they cope with it. And some people flop on the ground and lay in a puddle of tears and that's how they deal with it and that's they're equal. You know what I mean? Yep. Just as long as you've dealt with the issue and eventually move on, that is what we call coping. Well, and I'm going to say, I don't think Rosetta was, you know, hurting for money because she decided that later that same year to commemorate the first anniversary of being a homeowner in Richmond, Virginia, and she decided to put on a concert in the Altria Theater. Supporting her for this concert was the Twilight Sisters, whom Rosetta adopted as her background singers for future concerts, renaming them the Rosettes. And so, you know, it's like, I think she's just like, I need something to sing for. Oh, I've owned my house for a year. Yep. Yay. It's just a good reason to be happy, likely. And honestly, the one thing that we have uh, abandoned in modern society that was really common more previously is anniversaries of things like that. Like, you know, I hate to go all the way back, so far back as like the Roman Empire and stuff, but they would have like, you know, parties. Like, my business has been around for five years, so now we're all going to hang out and, you know, have a party about it or whatever. Well, and so in 1951, Rosetta got 25,000 paying customers to go to her wedding with her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. Wait, so her her wedding was also a... A A performance. That's pretty fucking cool. And she sold tickets to it. To her own wedding? To her own wedding. Yeah, that's kind of weird. (laughs) it's a little weird (laughs) a little weird but you know i mean she's an artiste let's let's be honest yes maybe she was just like give me more fucking money because i need money i mean i i get it either way but that is a little weird doesn't sound like her popularity was waning that much but you know i'm just going off of what everything told me so yeah exactly no i don't i i'm just i'm taking a moment to try and like <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I ever get married, I will not be allowed to play that wedding. <laughs> I, I'll play your wedding, Ian. Don't worry about it. I don't think you're going to be allowed to play it either. I, I'm also all officiated too. Don't worry. <laughs> oh God, the horror I can just see on stage now. Oh, what well, I I would be great. 
I would look handsome in a little collar, too. Well, and here's the thing, though. I did kind of make a joke that, you know, her popularity really didn't seem to be waning. But, but then her popularity waned? Well, quote-unquote, secular rock and roll and rhythm and blues really started taking over. Like, they were the hits. Secular rock and roll as in not related to Jesus? Yep. Oh, uh, okay. As in not gospel songs. I see. And so... Throughout the 50s, you know, she would definitely not get nearly as much attention as she was getting. But in 1957, her career kind of had a revival when she began touring Europe and playing to audiences who had never experienced, like, authentic American gospel music before. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, think about it. She plays essentially blues, but she's also a gospel singer, which, as we talked about earlier from the church she was from, kind of... You know, that kind of music really started here. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so strange. Like, if you think about the movies about rock and roll and gospel, now that I think about it, like, you know, like Sister Act and Blues Brothers and things like that, like, the connection almost seems ambiguous. Yeah. But, like, I can't believe as we've dug so far back, the connection is not ambiguous. It's, it's It was always there. You know yeah. what I mean? Like... It's almost like rock and roll was created and then the portions of rock and roll were kind of extracted out of the things she did and a few other people did all at the same time and like took this whole element all together. But fucking hell, she's using a rock and or a fucking electric guitar in 38. Yeah, I, I can't say anything else. And that's the crazy part is like back when we had all these amazing musicians we talked about, she's kind of the one that adapted the electric guitar. A decade of in front of her time like a decade early she's literally like all over that shit well ahead of everybody else i can't think of one other person like we're uh, later in the season we're gonna do little richard and his yeah. career doesn't start for at least a decade after hers right uh, yeah yeah exactly like he's he's well and after that and so it's just so interesting to well, have and we'll talk relic. about little richard uh, a little later on in this episode we're actually getting pretty close to it but like, speaking of her trailblazing, this was 1957 when she started touring Europe. Yeah. Like, she was pretty much, like, the first artist to cross the Atlantic with this. And after the first tour, she would start bringing other people along, like Muddy Waters, Ransom Knowling, Little Willie Smith, Reverend Gary Davis, who I want to do an episode on someday. So, hold on. Muddy Waters again. I, I I think it was a few episodes ago, the Howling Wolf or the Helen Wolf episode, where uh, he had his whole revival during '65, and he also went with Muddy Waters over to Europe. It yeah. seems like Muddy Waters is associated with these European tours a lot more often. Well, than he not. was extremely influential over there, but if it wasn't for Sister Rosetta Tharp, he might not have ever made it. Yeah, she was his ticket over there. That's such an interesting like like a like a rebound to a theme that we've already talked about because we already talked about like how. A European tour is kind of, I don't know, it's it's a whole different thing. Like, once you've made it in the U.S. and you are so popular in the U.S. that people hear about you by proxy on another continent, and then they're finally like, hey, we think you're rocking enough. Why don't you come play in Europe, you know, where people heard about you halfway across the world just through proxy. Well, here's the crazy part. Because of these tours, she would inspire young musicians like Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, like, Two of the big artists in the British blues scene. Massive, you know? massive yeah. artists. You know, they were like instrumental for the British invasion. And they saw her in the 60s. Like she kept going back to Europe. 
Yeah, and and the worst part is no fucking like, and not not against them. It's against like the whole way that music works. We have forgotten she existed, and I don't mean in like a reprehensible way, but shame on fucking all of us for not remembering someone so influential. Like I get there's a lot of people that influence music in a lot of different ways, but the reality is like when somebody creates a genre like by themselves and comes out of something that is completely different to create something that we all cherish. Like how do we not know her name? Well, and that's the crazy part. I've actually heard of her. It's just one of those things where you hear, and then, you know, I've learned so much about music. It just like dropped out of my brain. You get lost in the names and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Cause that means that, you know, our musical culture is thick and we have a whole bunch of people to listen to and all that. And that's great. But <laughs> It's almost like we need a rating system, you know what I mean? Like, so that when, yeah. we, when I say a name, they're like, you know, you could be like Sister Rosetta Tharp, and then you could be like, I don't know, classified, like, she's an A-class musician, you know, or like a fucking... Like, Sounds like an app you need to start. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, she's considered this class or whatever. Like, I, I think something like that's important so that when <laughs> we hear names, we can know who to look up. Because I get regurgitated a thousand names a day, and that's not necessarily helping me. And I think one thing for her popularity in Britain, she did a televised performance of her songs Didn't It Rain and Trouble in Mind on a platform in an old Manchester train station that was, like, basically defunct, and they converted for her to play. And Yeah, like, the, we talked about that recording a little bit earlier, and that yeah. was fucking amazing. Yeah, and here's the crazy part is... These became big over in Britain, but kind of got lost to the wayside until YouTube came out and then were rediscovered. That actually is a kind of a, a theme that we've experienced a few times where these old uh, live recordings were never popular previously. But now that we've got like, a, you know, we've got YouTube to where not only yeah. can we share it easier, but uh, audio reconstruction quality is so much better now to where you could fix the little bit of problems that live shows typically had and then present them in a way to where you can view them easily, and suddenly it's, I, I would much rather listen to these live shows now. Well, I mean, just look back to our Sunhouse or even Booker White episode. Like, these are the biggest ones I can think of right now. Yeah. Like, because they have, like, millions of hits on YouTube also. Yeah, But exactly. if you look at this train station one, this has over a million hits. Like, you know... People watch it. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, and if you get, just go to some of these videos and look at the comments, like, people are obviously, people know. Like, it's not, the fact that me and Ian weren't familiar with this person, even though Ian has heard of her before, but we weren't ultra familiar with her. Like, that doesn't mean that she's not popular at all. But what, like, it's, she clearly does have fans even to this day, but it's just a shame that the name isn't more prominent and that she doesn't get the respect that she honestly truly deserves. And isn't that what we're trying to do with this show is give respect to the artists that people don't know? Yeah, I, I, that is literally the uh, the mission statement of what we do here, if there's nothing else. It's do check out the people that you didn't check out. Well, and I actually have a Bob Dylan quote about her playing in Europe. Oh, lay it down on me. Oh, yeah, I was able to bring Bob Dylan oh, into this yeah, episode. Bob Dylan moment. <laughs> he said, and I quote, I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up electric guitars after getting a look at her. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I bet. That is so funny because so we're talking about what was her recording year? 1966? Her first recording? Or no, no. The, 1938. No, no. I was talking about the, the recording of those videos in, in Europe. 
Uh, mid sixties. I don't have an exact date because I know a lot of the stuff we were looking at was what sixty five and sixty six. Correct. Any of her live stuff was probably late fifties to mid sixties. Any of her actual like recording stuff, they were all from like thirty eight to I want to say about forty seven. Okay, so so she is even. For that era, she's on the front end because those those uh, European tours in the 60s didn't really start getting cracking until, you know, 64, 65, 66, 67. Yeah, and she started touring Europe in 57. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, so she is literally the first wave that went over there. And that definitely, if we're, if we want to be, like, ridiculous about it, we can play, you know, A Thousand Ways to, to Rosetta Tharp is, like, Think of all those British fucking, like, punk bands. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. That, like, you know, it, like, it really is five degrees from Kevin Bacon or whatever it is. Where if you th- <laughs> Six if, degrees of separation. Yeah, whatever it may be. <laughs> uh, if you don't have her and, you know, taking Muddy Waters over there, that we, that one tour, we may not have things like the Sex Pistols. Like, these weird British punk bands might not My have, personal favorite, The Damned. Yeah, exactly. These, br- these British punk bands may have never existed existed and like get way away from the fact that we you know england got really obsessed with uh american musical culture and created things like you know the the early like psychobilly and stuff like that like i don't know you just wouldn't get any of that without these early tours or maybe we would, we would have got it 10 or 20 years later well and as we digress even further from the biography let's get back to do check out the song so you guys got to check these songs out didn't it rain in trouble in mind. Oh yeah, and it did rain. And actually, we'll put these on our Spotify, but you guys should really YouTube these songs because she literally plays us on a defunct train station. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It is great. And she's got an old PV backing her. I don't know why that's a note to me, but it's just like, oh fuck, there's a PV over yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> there. There's about ten percent of guitar players out there who will immediately care too. I mean, the fact that you mentioned they're like, oh PV, I'm gonna watch that video right now. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome to my nerddom. Yeah, I wasn't trying to like negatively imply all you guys. Yeah, you were. I was dropping the spotlight. I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hit that button. How'd that happen? <laughs> And so, as we talked about, you know, she basically toured a lot in Europe, but by 1970, her performances were kind of curtailed by a stroke. Oh, no. And then after this, she would end up getting one of her legs amputated as the result of complications from diabetes. Oh, God damn it. Take care of your body, people. Yeah, it really didn't do much after that. And October 9th, 1973... On the eve of a scheduled recording session, she died in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, of a stroke. Oh. (laughs) Her second stroke? Her second stroke. That fucking sucks, guys. Jesus. I feel like we, like, with her... We we had such an upswing and just such a quick drop off. I feel like it was just literally ten seconds ago. I was talking about well, how great her tours were in the well, sixties. And that's and stuff. the thing is, essentially, that's all she did in that time was tours. So we have no real recordings to talk about, you know, other than the fact that I mentioned these now because I felt they were suiting to mention them at this point. But they were recorded decades earlier, and so 
she would end up getting buried in an unmarked grave in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. A fucking unmarked grave? Yeah. Dude, she was rich for like 20 years. Well, a marker has actually been placed on a grave since then. But yeah, oh. it started out in an unmarked grave. Thank you, Janis Joplin. <laughs> I don't know if she had anything to do with this one. <laughs> but it's just weird because we haven't heard about anybody getting buried in an unmarked grave in a while. Like, everybody had a marker. Yeah, we're... Uh, she, unmarked graves is for people who uh, don't have a lot of money when they die and stuff like that. You know, you're lucky to get a plot in a graveyard. You know, a headstone can be expensive, and a lot of people are like, oh, we'll just save up a few years and place a headstone later, and then it never happens. Yeah. And having a bunch of money and being in an unmarked grave, that's uh, that's something else. And being in an unmarked grave aside, I do want to talk about her influence on rock and roll in and of itself because we've mentioned it several times, but I've been kind of saving a couple gems till the very end because I think oh, it's, yes. I think it really is appropriate here. Oh, it's the lore. Lay it on me in the lore. Chuck Berry once said his entire career was, and I quote, one long Sister Rosetta Tharp impersonation. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Oh, that is so humble of Chuck Berry to say because Chuck Berry's a fucking amazing it, musician in and he's, itself. If you've seen some of his stuff, he's not exactly the most humble person at times. Yeah, no, but that, uh, yeah, and I'm not trying to say he is humble, but I'm saying that statement is, is extremely, yeah. extremely humble. Well, and here's the thing. You know... The duck walk that he made famous. Yeah, the the little dance. Where he gets real down low and like yep. kind of like hobbles along. Yeah. Sister Rosetta Tharp actually did an early version of that. Oh, of course she did. And she did it in a dress and heels. If you <laughs> listen to the song that she recorded in 1947, The Lord Followed Me, listen to the intro and then the solo in that, and you will literally hear, like, Chuck Berry solos in that. Yeah, no, it is. It, it You could play it side by side with any Chuck Berry riff and be like, oh, uh, I can't tell the yeah, difference. Yeah, especially that opening riff where it's got it's got that that bend into, into that typical, like, 50s, like, it's rock and roll minor pentonic thing. Yeah. And so, first of all, we obviously here are not claiming to be the inconsolable top top consultant of all music history or anything like that because that is fucking retarded but as far as me and ian's research has gone as and we've been doing it at this very moment by the way for exactly six months there's no there's no earlier example we've been we've been scouring music history and we cannot find an earlier example now of rock this, and roll this is this is where it came from yeah and and, and, and if you want another example of this Little Richard, who we are going to cover. Yeah, he's our he's our season finale this this season. Yeah, Little Richard called her his greatest influence, and she was the first to put him on a stage. Oh yeah. And this is all told in Little Richard's autobiography. So like this is coming directly from him. So she literally was the first to put him on stage ever? That's the way it looks like. Oh, that is so fucking cool. That's the lore, Ian. That's the good lore. Oh, yeah. The lore right down upon yes. me. Shower me in the music lore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash were all inspired by her. And so one man named Little Walter whose 1955 number one R&B hit, My Babe, owed 
everything to one of her biggest hits, This Train. You even pointed it out earlier after I played it for you. You realize that whole bass line is, and I'm not talking like bass bass, but like the bass of the guitar. It was all this, based this off of. This song is the song. It's literally This Train. Yeah, it's This with, Train with, with, with that walking line there. Yep. He owes his entire career to Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yep, and he uh, he damn well deserves to owe it to her because that she fucking she rocks and that version's amazing, and even though it is a cover, like that's an inspired cover. That's that's transcending for a gospel person to be doing a Woody Guthrie cover with this this like transitioning like style I, and I to create know. a guitar line that inspired a number one hit with completely different lyrics. And now that I think about it, honestly, this train is bound for glory is probably a gospel hit and not a Woody Guthrie original. Now that my brain actually starts that, to wrap around it, that actually a, could be. That's there's, probably a traditional gospel there, song. There's a high likelihood that I that I just know the earliest version as my in my own personal knowledge is the 1922 version so it's probably a gospel version uh i i'm not looking it up right now but if that's that's likely the case now that i think about it and if you thought this was the end of my notes i got one more thing for you oh shit do check out this song the lord followed me oh yes the lord follow me did we listen to this one earlier Yes, we did. Oh, actually, I think I know. I, I do remember which one this was. And this is actually such a good fucking song. Yeah. We listened to this right at the end, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to end with her death. Like, I just felt like with how much influence she had. Dude, her legacy lives so far past her death. We should have put her death at the beginning of the show. <laughs> and I don't mean that disrespectful for or disrespectful way for her. I mean, her legacy should be expanded until yeah. now. And here's the thing. This is basically our last thoughts. Fuck you. We're, this is our announcement. Like, she started rock and roll. I mean, hands down, this is where it came from. Like, all the solos and stuff like that and the minor pentatonic uh, yeah. scale, like, just the inflection she had in the guitar. She did this 10, 15 years before them, and they just were able to take the technology that they had at the time and make it even more impactful. And so it's interesting if you really look at it, because I was taking a look at all the influences that were coming through and what the years are possible. And it, with her picking up the electric guitar, I think that actually has to do with her being a gospel singer, because it, I think it's <laughs> likely that she was playing guitar for, like, you know, larger things like crowds and things like that larger right. louder crowds and so she like an acoustic guitar probably wouldn't do it at that point well and, and i mean think about the amount of people gospel attract gospels type music attracts nowadays like i mean back then it had to have been a big thing because everybody was going to church well plus yeah exactly well and think of the crowd singing along that increases the crowd volume like even at rock and roll we have roaring crowds but they know to shut the fuck up during a solo because no one can hear anything if everybody's yelling during the solo well, music nowadays is so loud you can't hear anybody well, okay. yelling anyway yeah with some exceptions it depends on crowd size but i'm just saying like if you go to a crowd like a like a club in Seattle and there's 300 people packed into a small building, which, you're never gonna hear yourself over the guitar solo. Yeah, anyway. yeah, exactly. But and they're all screaming at the same time. Nobody's hearing anything. That's all I'm getting at, really. And that's probably more likely the the capacity that we're talking about. Huh? You know, I never even thought of that. That's actually a good point. You might be onto something there because of the crowds that were in. You know the 
the churches and stuff like singing that. Singing along, knowing Sing all the lyrics. Yeah, it, it was probably rocking and rolling pretty hardcore. So an electric guitar would be loud enough to get over the uh, the setup. And I bet at that point they'd start moving to PAs too. Yeah, yeah. I I would imagine that would be, like, especially, like, you know, right above the choir so they could project it out there, you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. And then that to be mixed with, like, you could see where the blues comes in, the pentatonic and the way that she forms her note structures and yeah. the way she draws how she's planning on using her left hand on the yeah. on the guitar fretboard is all so bluesy. Well, it's bluesy, but if you really listen to it, it is early rock and roll just because of how she accentuates the notes because exactly. she wouldn't have been able to do that without the electric guitar too. Well, and that's what I'm saying is like though the note structure is 100% blues picking the pentatonics and using the the quick 1/5 and the trill the trills, you know, the 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 classical structure that we'll call rock and roll. Yeah. Uh like doing that that is blues as blues was played right there, but she plays it in a way through function that cha- makes it completely different. And that is the difference between rock and roll and blues right now. Well, right. And, you know, the way she uses her bends is really rock and roll. Because, like, if you listen to the way blues musicians use their bends, it's a little slower, less, like, drastic. Like, she would do that typical, you know, like, like just the real fast, like. But, but. And you are, I'm exactly with you. And But think of that if you just really draw out the time and like, ha, like how slow it is and how much the, the bends are drawn out and you just take the note structure, it, that those rock and roll intros with like, you know, whatever they may be. Perfect example yeah, of that. Yeah, because obviously I can, I can articulate so, but you know what I mean? Like the, the classic rock and roll intros are just blues intros played with the the finger structure completely different you know they they don't draw out all the notes and and do the long slides with the weird yep. bends instead it's it's solid hammer-ons and draws and you know quick bends yeah quick made, bends yeah. And all those things that may you know may influence that, that the made sound. rockabilly like that she did rockabilly solos before anything was ever called rockabilly she did rock and roll solos before anything was ever called rock and roll. And just to draw so much of the things that we've talked about already in all of our seasons together, the reason they call it rockabilly is because you know where the finger structures that they are using that come from? That's that that whole cowboy whistling mentality that we talked about that co- that covered up hillbilly music. Yep. Yeah. Guess where all guess where hillbilly music went after that? Rockabilly? Yeah, so it took about 20 Whoa. years or whatever it may be, or 10 <laughs> years or whatever it may be, but Rockabilly eventually came, or the the Billy in it, the hillbilly portion of it, really implies more of these quick finger changes and these short, like, like, uh, like what is it, like the quick slides? Like, really quick, like, one fret slides, like, wah, wah, wah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, those, I mean... Like that's those yeah. are things that that go dormant for about ten years and come back in a. It, she was like basically the only one doing it for a decade before she started influencing the likes of like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and eventually like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton. Yeah, and uh, just just think of all those minute inspirations taken from so many places and played in a religious song structure that suddenly creates something that there's no way she could have ever known that she was, you know, 
rolling out rock and roll here right. real quick. Just, I, I bet for her, like, because if I'm trying to perspective, or like, set it in perspective for myself, and if you think about it, she had to have been like, all right, so we're just trying to take what's cool and, and hip right now, and we're trying to make it upbeat and more gospely, right? Yep. So she took the blues, and she took this guitar-driven, like, style and culture, and she took the, the better-sounding portions out of the other fingered-stringed instruments of the time, and like mash them all together and suddenly before you know it it is perfect rock and roll before she could have ever understood what rock and roll was yeah i'm pretty sure we found patient zero for rock and roll right here yeah and uh, you know obviously we're <laughs> we once again are not like music historians or anything and we're not trying to put well a we're becoming well w- w- yeah uh, someday this is going to be a legitimate legitimate <laughs> thing but right now currently we're only researching what we have researched so far and only to make claim to what we have recorded to make claim to but Already, I can't think of anything that could possibly be earlier. I can't find anything that could possibly be earlier. Not just that, but someone who influenced all of the early rock and rollers. Like this is like this is like the person. She influenced the biggest names in rock and roll, and that's including Elvis Presley. Like literally the guy who was considered the king of rock and roll. She yeah. influenced him. Yeah, the dude who's fucking bacon tan in the asshole spotlight still for so many episodes in a <laughs> row. I don't know why we keep crucifying the poor guy, but we're probably going to keep doing it. Oh, well, maybe we'll get into an episode about him where we can crucify him some more. <laughs> but I don't know. Just it is so interesting to just take the second and think about like the chain of events that lead to rock and roll and how all of that has really influenced what we've what we've come to know as music like so many small pieces of so many interesting cultures snake together into this like we said it it has it, it comes with the genesis of new technology drum sets things like that those weren't around before not necessarily because we didn't have they were they were around but it was in those like dixieland jazz stuff where the instruments were already really loud yeah exactly they were because because drums were so loud you could you can't put it in a folk band with an acoustic guitar yeah well i mean we did we did but we also had things mic'd yeah that's a good point like you you can't do it in complete instrumental situation unless you got a really delicate drummer anyways I don't know. It's it's just such an interesting combination. And, you know, to talk about how complex the whole classification is, to say that she's the first is, of course, you could probably dig back a few years before and find the things that influenced her and call that technically. Maybe. Cause, cause May- what, I mean, even historians are calling her the first. Well, that's what I'm saying is you could find earlier things that have certain influences on the music she creates, but nothing will... Nothing that that I have seen, and I've I've honestly can say that I've dug through the top 100 charts for two decades. <laughs> One of the things media did during our early research is literally dig through the top 100 charts from 1921 to 1939, and then. And I how did, many times has Bing Crosby on that stupid oh, list? Fucking oh my god, so many times. And then after 49, we even did it what 50 to 59 a couple seasons ago, and it's it's insane. It's like looking at the list, you begin to really understand what culture is, and like these these certain iconic people, and we learn these names that we had never learned. 
there isn't anybody who's more fucking rock and roll than this lady. And you know what? If you're out there playing rock and roll right now, whether it's metal or hard rock or, you know, trying to do some 50s revival rockabilly stuff, you got Sister Rosetta Thorpe to thank. And you know what? We thank her, too, because without her, maybe we wouldn't even have rock and roll music to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we, we've kind of gotten into this, like, last thoughts thing. And so I'm just going to, my last thoughts, we've all, I've, I've, I've raved and ranted and raved over this lady over multiple moments. And we've kind of gotten to this moment of dus- discussing inspiration. So I'm just going to instead give a, a cheery route to anybody who needs inspiration for music. No matter who you are and what genre you play, what instrument you play, whatever you do and whatever you produce, it's okay to look at other sources and look farther away. Too many musicians today come to me and ask, how can I improve and how can I get better or how can I understand my music better or feel the sources better or whatever it might be, but they are unwilling to step out of their small circle. So people who love, quote-unquote, you know, whatever it may be, you know, house rock or rock and roll or whatever, you know, metal guys or whatever it may be, are unwilling to step far enough away to actually learn things from other styles that they can incorporate then into metal. Yeah, like, they think that they can't take inspiration outside of metal to metal, and that's literally the opposite of what inspiration is. Well, and that's the thing. I've been trying to put myself in that headspace with my band because I'm currently trying to write a new album with less musicians than what I had before. And so I'm looking at alternatives. Like I've actually been trying to find like electronic music. That's not just EDM that's floating out there. And I've been finding some of this stuff and using that as inspiration towards like, Oh, I can do like a cool little thing here that I never thought of because I've been listening to music generated by human fingers. And it's like, Oh, that's interesting. This is, uh, you know, they use this computer to lay it out in a structural way that I've never thought of before. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things I've actually come in contact with because I play with uh, composition programs. And because I really like to, I know a lot about like the bass music theory, but I don't know specific instrument function enough to play high quality. So I like to play with different, you know, there's a few programs out there. None of them will be named because none of them are giving a sponsor money, but uh, you can actually emulate fairly decent quality sound uh, compositions and get like full stereo or- orchestras and shit out. And uh, like, I, I love doing all that. And, but if you don't take like certain specific inspirations, it just always comes out as a garbled mess. Yeah. And so it's, it's really important to, to be a scholar about the music you care about. And I don't mean this as in like, you know, you have to be snooty or overly knowledgeable or talk shit to anybody about their music. What you should do. That's actually the opposite of what you should do. You should not yeah, that's be what I'm snooty. Saying. Yeah, don't do it at all. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Don't do any of that. And what I'm saying is learn every type of music because if you don't know the rules, you can't break them. And every single genre has more rules for you to break. And if you want to learn more about other types of music, just keep listening to us because we're going to keep recording. And if you want other people to learn more about other types of music, just check us out on our social media, especially our Spotify. All the songs we've talked about are on our profile on Spotify. 
You can literally find lists of everything we've made. Yep, and uh, as of a couple weeks ago, I made Ian start putting a list in our description or a link in our descriptions to our Spotify because it came to our attention it was a little harder to find. So I've made a handy set of links for us to set in our descriptions for our uploads now. So just check out below, look in the description. You'll find all the links you need to go to all the handy locations. Thank you all for listening to us. We fucking love you. Did you know that? We do love you. I mean, I, 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 not to brag or anything, but the moment that we were listening to this, we just hit uh, it one quarter of a thousand listens in total. So you know, woot 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 woot. We're uh, we're making our grind, and uh, once again, Virginia, you guys are coming out to play in our listeners group. Uh, you guys listen more than anybody else in the whole country. I don't know why Virginia loves us so much, but thank y'all, and have a good night.